Good morning. It's such a joy to be back in New England. The weather has been incredible. It just takes my breath away, the foliage that you all have up here this year. It's been 20 years since my last fall in New England when I came to attend Chuan and Lorelai's wedding 20 years ago in October. And after the wedding, we had a group honeymoon where we joined them in the Berkshires with my family. I don't think I ever thanked Lorelai for letting us crash your honeymoon. <laughs> but thank you so much for your support for our ministry. My husband and I feel thoroughly alive in this work that God has given us to do to activate the church in North America to bring the good news of Jesus to the ends of the earth and to the ends of the earth people that have come to our doorstep. This morning, I'm going to just share from the scriptures about God's heart for the alien and the stranger. I was one myself about uh, since 1980 when I first came to the U.S. as a student. Um, and you guys have done such a great job welcoming the stranger. After the first service, one young man came up to me. He's from India but grew up in Saudi Arabia. And he said for the first year of his college life, he was so miserable, so lonely, struggling so much until he met you guys. And then things started to change. So thank you for what you are already doing for the alien and the stranger. Um, I have about 30 minutes um, to share from the pulpit. For the first 10 minutes, I'm going to share from the scriptures what God says about his care for the alien and the stranger. Okay? In that 10 minutes, I'm going to condense what's worth 10 hours down into a very concentrated tablespoon from the banquet of scriptures. Okay? The second 10 minutes, I'm going to share my personal adventures in mission and what God has taught me. And the, in the third part of uh, my time, the last 10 minutes, I'm going to invite my dear friend from Iraq, Maha Al-Havaji, to share with you what it's been like for her as a refugee from Baghdad um, to resettle in Atlanta. Um, Maha and I have been friends for exactly six years and she comes from a region just by the Tigris River, which is the cradle of civilization, as you know from your history, and also uh, where the prophet Jonah was buried. Remember, he was sent to Nineveh. Uh, the Iraqis called that place Nanaiwe, and they believe that his body is buried there. But anyway, my first 10 minutes. God protects the aliens and the strangers. First verse, he upholds the cause of the oppressed. He lifts up those who are bowed down. He watches over the alien and sustains the fatherless and the widow. Now, there's a dozen verses like this, right? Remember in James, it says, what is true religion? It is to care for the widow and the orphan in their distress. And God himself said, I am the husband of the widow. I am the father of the fatherless. And all throughout Leviticus, he talks about the laws that pertain to the alien. Do not discriminate. Do not subject to them to oppression. Treat them like you would a citizen of Israel. Um, and why? In the second verse, do not oppress an alien. You yourselves know how it feels to, uh, to be aliens because you were aliens in Egypt. You may remember that Jesus was a refugee in Egypt. Does that ring a bell? When the angel came to his dad and said, pick up and leave right now, tonight, because you are being hunted down. And so the whole family moved to Egypt before they eventually settled back in Nazareth. And remember the Hebrew slaves, you know, 
make more bricks with less straw and the oppression they went through for so long before their deliverance out of Egypt. So God is reminding them, empathize with the alien because you remember your suffering. And then from Hebrews, don't forget to entertain or take care of strangers. Remember those who are mistreated as if you yourselves were suffering. So he's saying, remember, use your memory of your pain and extrapolate that to what people might be going through and walk in their shoes. And finally, for Matthew, in the famous passage of the separation of sheep and goat, Jesus said, I was naked, you clothed me, I was hungry, you fed me, I was in prison, you came to visit me, and I was a stranger, and you invited me in. And we all want to be in that section where the sheep are, where Jesus says, this is what you did, and we'll go, was that you? I didn't realize that was you. And Michael Card has a wonderful song about that. He calls it, your distressing disguise, that Jesus came in a very distressing disguise as that homeless man, as that refugee, as that alien. And he wants us to relate to them as if that was him. Our next slide. The temple as IHOP. I'm sure you all have the International House of Pancakes up here. We have it too. Uh, these three verses have to do with the label that God gives to the temple. If he had a marquee outside the temple, it might say IHOP because this is what God calls his house. And foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord to serve, to love, worship him, I will give them joy in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. IHOP. Now, next week you guys are going to have the opening celebration for your family life center and in the blue ribbon, ribbon cutting ceremony I'm sure pastor will roll out what are the purposes for which this place is being built now when King Solomon was uh, faced with the same situation in his prayer to dedicate the temple this is what he said he prayed for the foreigner he said God as for the foreigner who doesn't belong to your people Israel but has come from a distant land when he comes and prays toward this temple hear from heaven and do whatever the foreigner asks of you, so that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you. So in his purpose for this temple, definitely he was setting a place. In fact, it was called the courtyard of the Gentiles. This temple was structured in such the courtyard of the Gentiles, where they were allowed to come to pray. And then the next layer in is the courtyard for the Jewish women, and then the courtyard for the Jewish men. And then, you know, as it gets closer, it's the Holy of the Holies. And in this courtyard that was dedicated for the Gentiles is where the money changers set up shop. Okay, you remember the passage where Jesus cleansed the temple? The first time you see Jesus actually doing something physical with his anger. He took a whip and he chased the animals out and he overturned the, the tables. Can you imagine? I think we would be horrified if we actually saw that happening. But what was happening is they had converted the courtyard of the Gentiles to a place where currency was being exchanged. It's a noisy place. In the parts of the world where we come from, shopping is not a quiet thing. We are bargaining. You know? And these people, they were cheats. They were charging many times more to buy a dove or a sheep or a goat and changing much more than the correct currency rate. For the foreigners, there were money exchanges there because of the foreigners that were coming to exchange money so they could bring in their tithe probably or buy the, you know, animals for sacrifice so they had 
made that into a den of robbers, robbing the people, not just of money, but of their place of quiet prayer and worship. And so the zeal for the house of God consumed Jesus. Next slide. From Isaiah 49. This is one of my husband's favorite verses. It is too small a thing for you to be my servant, to restore just the tribes of Jacob or Israel. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. Here God is giving this mandate not just to Isaiah, his missionary servant, but also to Israel as his missionary nation. That it is too small a portfolio for you just to focus on yourselves. I will make you a light to the outsider. And actually my portfolio for you is global. Okay? And the people of Israel had gotten so far away from this mandate that by the time God called Jonah to be a light to the nations, what happened? You remember Jonah's story. All our little children from Sunday school remember this. God called Jonah to go where? Okay, to Maha's part of the world, Nanaiwa. And instead, he went the opposite. He's the worst case example of a missionary. You know, go here, he runs here. And, and eventually God has to conscript a whale to redirect his path. And after God had saved the people of Nineveh because they repented, what did Jonah do? He had a pouting fit. He sat down and he was so unhappy. He was so displeased and he was angry. And he said this to God, Oh Lord, isn't this what I said when I was still at home? That's why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish, I think it's Spain. I knew that you were going to be gracious, compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. In other words, he's saying, I just knew how you're just so predictable. I just knew what you were going to do if I were to preach the good news. This is what was going to happen, and you did it. Now just, I just want to die. Just kill me. I just don't even want to live. I'm so depressed. He was really appalled that God would show generosity and grace to his enemies. And they were enemies for good reason. I think these people were the same people who brought the Israelites into captivity with fish hooks in their mouth. They did many terrible things. And so out of that hurt and bitterness and anger, he was not happy that God was extending a hand of salvation to these foreigners. Next slide over. The church is the only club that exists for the benefit of its non-members. Here's why we say this. Do you remember the first sermon that Jesus ever preached? He had just been tested in the wilderness, 40 days without food, and he emerged out of that victorious over Satan. He was filled with the Holy Spirit. He goes back to his hometown, and he read from the in a passage in Isaiah, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He has anointed me to preach good news to the poor, to proclaim captive to the uh, liberty to the captives, sight to the blind. And everybody was just amazed. You know, they were raving about his sermon. But towards the end, he pushed a button and they went ballistic. They were consumed with a blind rage and they dragged him out of the synagogue, out of the edge of town, and they were going to toss him over the cliff and have him murdered. This was a man who grew up in this town. They know his cousins, his brothers, his parents, and they were ready to kill him at the end of his sermon because of this passage. He said, I tell you the truth, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you, there, are, there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time 
when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine. Yet Elijah was not sent to one of them, but he was sent to a widow in Sidon, outside of Israel. Elijah was sent to a foreigner. Not only that, there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of prophet Elisha, and yet not one of them was cleansed. Only Naaman, was Arab, the Syrian. That was enough, you know, for them to just want to take him out at that point. Because he, they had forgotten that their mandate was to be a nation of priests. You know, this uh, verse, you are a kingdom of priests, you know, a royal priesthood, that is throughout scripture also in Old Testament and the New Testament in the First Peter. You are a kingdom of priests. Can you imagine a nation where everybody's job description is priest, 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 priest. Were they supposed to priest each other? No, they were a priestly unit for the nations. But they had forgotten this mandate. <clears throat> and they had forgotten the original call to <clears throat> Abraham. They say that the Great Commission was first, you know, um, previewed not in Matthew, you know, not in when Jesus left and was about to leave and say, go therefore and make disciples to all nations. The Great Commission was actually in Genesis 12. When God told Abraham, I will bless you, I will bless you, I will bless you. It says it five times. And that's the top line. I will make a great nation for you. You will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you five times. So that, and here's the bottom line, so that all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you, through the seed of Abraham, through which salvation will come to the world. We like to focus on the top line and we forget the bottom line. Again, in Psalm 67, many churches use this verse as a benediction. May God be gracious to us. May God bless us, make his face to shine upon us, give us peace. But it doesn't have a period at the end of that sentence. It's actually a comma with the so that, the bottom line, so that your ways may be known on earth, your salvation among all nations. So this heart for all nations is actually from Genesis to Revelation. At the end of uh, Revelation, we see this picture of the multitudes beyond number from every tribe, every tongue, every nation. Okay? God wants the global worship because his agenda is global and he has chosen us to be that conduit of blessing. So when we pray, let us focus not on asking God's blessing, but ask God, would you just make me that conduit to just flow your resource because we have been blessed for the bottom line to be the blessing. Okay, so 10 hours in 10 minutes. You did well. Let me tell you some of our adventures in this in a wonderful thing that God has called us to do. About 10 years ago, my husband and I came to the realization that most of our hospitality has been very tame. We just reach out to people who are fun to be with, you know, and enjoyable and safe. We started to pray, God, will you just... Help us to take a little bit more risk. Here's why. Because there is no growth in your comfort zone and there's also no comfort in your growth zone. And, you know, John Ortberg's book says it all in the title. If you want to walk on water, you've got to get out of the boat. I love books like that because I don't have to read it to know the main point. I got it. So I, I've always been drawn to this idea of living on the edge so that you can see God showing up. God only shows up in the most extreme situations, it seems to me. 
His miracles are safe for the most desperate situations, for the barren woman. Because out of barrenness, then you can see the miracle. You know, out of extreme situations, you see the glory of God. And so we started to pray like this. And very soon after that, God started giving us more challenging people to host in our family. One of these men was a man from Mexico named Tarcisio Lopez. The way our life intersected with him was not by choice. My husband, on a very freezing day in December, was walking home from work, and he ran into this man who was walking in the same direction, huddled over, freezing, and he started to talk to this man in his very limited Spanish and found out that this man does not have a place to stay. He said, where are you living? He said, he's actually sleeping behind a dumpster in like a mechanic shop in our neighborhood. So Ma goes, oh, at least come home to eat dinner with us. So he brought Tarsisio home, and was I jumping for joy? No, I was like so annoyed because we had another guest that we had invited, a man named Clay. This man we never see but once in four years, and Clay was coming to dinner, a special guest, and here he brings a homeless man for dinner. I was just irritated. But anyway, as we sat down to dinner, we realized that this was a God appointment because Clay, in his voluntary ministry, had seven or eight years under his belt ministering to the homeless. And he could size up Tarsisio, and at the end of the dinner, he said, this is a good man. He'll be okay if you wanted to invite him to stay with you. But just have a boundary. Just don't have him stay inside your house. Have him stay in your patio. We had put plastic in our screen-in porch, and we put a space heater and lots of blankets, and so that's where Tarsisio lived uh, throughout the winter. And then in the summer, we you know, moved into the garage and so on. But God really blessed our life with Tarsisio for the 10 months he was with us. You know, we, we didn't know he was a landscaper, and our garden never looked more beautiful. I mean, just amazing. He was the hardest worker I'd ever seen. And we would find him jobs with people in our congregation, yard work, and he would work really hard, and they would be blown away. Then he would come back and work on our yard. You know, and he was so grateful for the help that we tried to pay him for his work, but he says, my wife, you know, says, do not receive money from these people. Don't you dare receive a dollar because of their hospitality to you. And he was so sweet. He would bring mangoes and avocados home and said, this is for your daughter, Kimberly. And, you know, and my Spanish was improving day by day. Uh, but Tarsisi also had a problem because of his struggle. He had not seen his family for eight years. He has three children, Alejandro, Guadalupe, Oscar. He hadn't seen these kids since they were little, for eight years. And he would call his wife every week, Maria. And for her to make the phone call, she would have to take the bus way into town at a certain time to have the phone call. She had a little house, no running water, no electricity. You know, and this man was clearly struggling. He'd been away from home for so long. Uh, he was the same age as me. And, and you know, most of us would get on antidepressants, but he, he didn't have that luxury, so he took to drinking. Um, and one time, my husband very gently, you know, asked him about his drinking, and, and then he disappeared for two weeks. And we were very worried. We didn't see him for that long. And one night, my husband was coming home late at night, 11 or 12, and he said, oh, I have good news and bad news. Uh, good news is I know where Tarsisio is. The bad news is he's living under our house in the crawl space. That's where he had, you know, because of his shame about drinking. Anyway, we brought him out, and through a translator, we were able to just share you know, from John about the Father's love for him and come to Jesus. You know, he can give you the strength for whatever you're enduring. Just come to Jesus. And he agreed that it's time. 
for him to give his life over. And so we had the joy of seeing this man get new hope. And when we put him on the bus to back to Michoacan, Mexico, it was with joy and you know, thanks to him. And we grieved. We were missing him for a long time. But he totally blessed our lives. That was the story of Tarsisio. Um, some other things that I learned in our mission adventures is that if you want to grow compassionate kids that don't compare themselves to what their friends have, bring them alongside your ministry. You know, m my kids, we don't have a lot. We don't even have a TV, but they don't complain very much. Of course, my 16-year-old boy is saying, you know, all my friends have had a cell phone for many years. I don't have a cell phone. <laughs> so anyway, he's finally got a cell phone at 16. But one of the ways to raise kids that are compassionate and not complaining is to bring them alongside when you minister to the people who have the least of these things. Uh, I remember one time we were caring for Burmese refugees and they don't know how to read, you know. And if we went to um, Burma, honestly, we would be reading things upside down. We wouldn't even know it's upside down. They couldn't read their uh, water bill, so the water was turned off. And at, late at night, this guy, Mang uh, Tang Hill, calls me and said, we have no water, we have not had no water, and they have young children. So my, my husband was out of town, so my little kids, they were small at the time, we got every, you know, container we could find in the house and just filled it with water and got in the car and drove it to our Burmese friends so that they could have water to drink and stuff like that. Uh, so they get to see a slice of life that they would not. Then we also ministered to a Congolese single woman, Jeanette. She is a single woman, about 35 years old. She has eight children. The oldest is 13 and the youngest was a baby. Couldn't speak English, had no life skills, no job skills. And how was she paid to pay the rent? Honestly, she gave me many sleepless nights because she would often come to the office saying, I'm going to be evicted. And they were evicted actually several times. So eventually, God put it on my heart to just pass the hat around to some of my Christian friends to say, could you contribute something? At least we cover her rent. We can't do much, but at least we keep her in her apartment through the winter. And my daughter and I would sometimes go and help them to clean. You know, we would find chicken bones in the... Um, bedroom and so on but you know it gives my children a wake-up call that most of the world does not live like this and even right down the street from us the refugees do not live like we do a lot of reaching our aliens and strangers is very simple it's not rocket science at all it's just showing up reading their bills sorting out their junk mail can you imagine going to a country and you don't know what's the real stuff that you have to pay and the junk mail just show up show them how to uh, open a bank account when one of our Bantu friends came to live with us straight from a refugee camp, 15 years in refugee camp in Kenya, he was like, now what is that box at your driveway? Is that the place where you uh, get money? So he was thinking our mailbox is an ATM machine. So we had to explain, now this is how this mailbox works and this is how the ATM machine works. And his brother actually was 15 years old when he was watching Barney the Purple Dinosaur, you all know, is Barney still popular? And he, he got a very worried look and said, uh, you know this man Barney? Uh, was he born this way? Or is he wearing clothes? You know, we laugh, but I'm so glad we provided a safe place for them to ask these questions. Can you imagine going to high school and asking your classmate such a question? So we gave them a safe place where we could teach them some simple things that even our second graders can teach them. You know, times when I would go into an apartment and say, this is winter, why is your aircon on? And the man said, we don't have aircon. Then I walked them over, no, this is your aircon, it's on. <laughs> 
you know, and this is how you turn on your heat. So it's not hard to help people resettle with the little you know you can do so much to take away their fear and to explain simple things to them. It's a lot of fun. We, we, we could write a book about the cross-cultural bloopers that we have encountered. You know, we hosted one man from India, a medical student who was here to take some exams, and he went to the test, and in the break time, he went to the sandwich bar, and he came home and said, oh my goodness, I had this bowl of pudding, and later I realized I ate a bowl of mayonnaise. <laughs> and even Maha's sister, she went to a Japanese restaurant, and she saw the glob of wasabi, and she thought it was uh, um, guacamole, and she ate the whole glob like it was avocado. You know, we, we laugh about these things, and I laugh at myself too when I first came as a student. You know, I didn't know how to operate a washing machine, so I would just hang out at the laundromat waiting for the other students to come so I can watch uh, how they do this, how do they operate the washing machine. You know, and even in the public restroom, because in Malaysia we only have faucets that work one way, but here you have faucets that some of them you push, some of them you pull, some of them you swing, some of them rotate. I mean, you just never know how they're going to work, so it's embarrassing to be there and trying to figure out, so you just hang back and let people wash their hands while you watch. So, so anyway, it's not hard to resettle the alien and the stranger. I was one myself. It can be embarrassing, and you can spare us a lot of embarrassment. Okay, so it's fun, and your children learn a lot, and it also deepens your life tremendously to walk with them through their suffering. You know, with our Bantus, they had no idea how to use the stove. We had three fires in that same apartment complex. And the third fire consumed the entire apartment. Uh, here's why our friends had their electricity turned off. We didn't realize they, they couldn't pay their bills. They were working with kerosene, and one day the children just tipped over the kerosene and zoom. They escaped with their lives, really. Um, and one thing the Bantus do, instead of wallpaper, they hang fabric that's colorful and beautiful but the fabric along the walls just caused the fire to spread quickly. You know, so sitting with them and just suffering with them, why did Allah do this to us? They were just grieved and couldn't understand from a spiritual standpoint why God had let them down. And I was telling them, you know, actually God didn't do this to you, but here's how God will redeem and my church will walk alongside you. In one weekend, we collected enough furniture to replenish and then some. We moved them to a new apartment, you know, with a lot of our kids helps, teenagers help to move them, a family of um, 10 children. We moved them uh, because of the fires that consumed. So walking with them alongside their grief, and many of our refugees, their families are still in harm's way. Um, cousins, uncles being blown up by car bombs, by suicide bombers, um, on and on, the, the trauma is there. One Burmese woman, the only um, breadwinner in her family was killed in the bus accident in Malaysia and he was supporting six of her sisters and now they had no means of support. A 22-year-old man killed when he was a refugee in Malaysia and just collecting money to help tide them over these difficult times, you know, walking them through their sorrow and their trials and also the joy. There's so much fun. You learn about their customs, their foods. You include them in the celebrations like Thanksgiving. When I was a student, I remember not having a place to go to one Thanksgiving and then going to the grocery store, you see people laden with their carts, and they look so harassed and unhappy because there's so much work to do. And I said to myself, if I ever find myself in that position to have people around me for Thanksgiving, I would be so happy. I will not feel hassled because it's a privilege to have people to be with on a special occasion. People to cook with, 
you know, people to plan for. That is a privilege. Um, and so that's how I see my vacation, my holiday sessions, to help make sure that nobody's left alone uh, in these times. Another joy that I had recently was to see my Bantu friends. You know, after how it's been nine years, they have come to be able to go to college, to graduate. You know, people who didn't know who Barney was, the same person is now, you know, a graduate of the University of Washington in Seattle. And uh, he told me he wants to work for the FBI. And this is very interesting to me because he told me the reason I want to work for the FBI is because my people, the men, do not know how to treat the women. And they do wrong things to them. They do bad things to them. And when this same boy, Bilal, was in high school, he was almost expelled from Roswell High because he was sexually harassing a girl on the bus without realizing that it was wrong. And fast forward, you know, six years, he wants to find a career where he is an agent of rescue and not harm. And in that trip, you know, I was in Seattle, and here he was with his Bluetooth and his Honda taking me places in his car. You know, our roles reversed. You know, I had a chance to tell him, this is why our team helped you in those early years, because of Jesus. And Jesus is in the Quran. There are 100 references to Isa al-Masih in your Quran, and you can follow him based on the Quran itself. And he had no idea. He had no idea. So it was just a wonderful bridge, but it took many years of language learning and just think the credibility that you get just from giving and loving and walking alongside day by day. Um, so I would like now to introduce my friend Maha. She is from Baghdad. She was a top student in engineering at the university in Baghdad. And because of the war and the danger to her family because of their cooperation with the US military, the Red Cross, the UN, her, day, her family became uh, targets, and so they had to leave within 24 hours, went to Jordan as, uh, as refugees, and then to Atlanta, where they have lived with us for, I mean, in our community for six years. Maha, would you come? Would you please welcome her? <laughs> Maha, thank you for doing this. We are pretty much unrehearsed. I told her some of the things I would like to ask her, but I didn't know what she's going to say, so we can just be a little bit spontaneous. So Maha, tell us about the circumstances that brought you to the U.S. Good morning, everybody. <laughs> well, uh, I think you mentioned uh, the reason why uh, we, I'm here, or actually my family here. Um, it's very clear also about the situation in Iraq, you know, that there's a still war going on, um, civil war, let's say. Uh, we, my family and I had to leave Baghdad uh, because we were targeted. I know it's, I, I'm kind of, you know, a little bit, I'll try to say it in the way that I lived it, but you guys can, um, I don't know. <laughs> just go for it. I'll say it. Uh, well, we, I was a normal student, you know, going, just going to school every day and suddenly within 24 hours, we basically had to leave home. Uh, we got threatened, and my family and I had to leave everything. Um, I lived in Jordan for about one year, and then by the time that I started to apply for school again, um, my mom and younger sister and I had to come to the U.S. Uh, as refugees. It was uh, something, I cannot describe it, because it was something good and something stressful at the same time. 
uh, it was good because at least, you know, we were settled at a place that we can call it home. I cannot go back home. Like, I can't go back to Iraq. And it was stressful because of everything. You're facing a new country, a new culture, a new language. Uh, everything is new. And you don't really know what's, what, what are you heading to. I remember the first time you took the bus, they were so excited that they were successful in taking the bus, you know, just two miles down the street because it was so scary. They, you know, they only had cars, they never had to take the bus in Baghdad, and here they had to figure out the bus system, and it's scary. Yeah, so I think what, what was very helpful for, for my family and me specifically is uh, having Chuhi as a friend, you know, knocking the door first day and... Uh, Somebody knocked the door and was like, who's this, you know? We never had anybody coming in. And so she introduced herself, and then uh, she introduced us to some other friends, and uh, American friends, and little by little, you know, I started thinking and learning about things about the United States. I never knew, you know. I only see what's in the U.S. through the TV, and you can tell this is very, very limited, and it's unbiased, too. They love watching Oprah Winfrey in Baghdad, by the way. Oh, yeah, that's the thing. <laughs> That's what we see. <laughs> uh, but then, you know, just, I think what, what first thing that would, was very great and for me was very good experience is breaking down the fears that we have. You know, we were afraid and we were stressed uh, how people are going to treat us, how we're going to reflect, how can we speak, what, we, how, what are the things that Americans will take it, it's okay for them, but it's not okay for us, maybe, I don't know, many things, you know, and simple things. And little by little, it was like the friends that we were surrounded by, they were kind of adding and solving the puzzles that we have. Now, six years from now, I'm, I'm still working on my education, so I'm also a student here, I'm trying to work on my uh, engineering again hopefully I will graduate this time <laughs> and uh, I think we've done very very well my family and I and then other people I mean they're still working on themselves so mm -hmm. as recently I taught a cross-cultural adaptation class to a group of Iraqi women and uh, the, our cultures are so different I just even don't know where to be begin but for one example with hospitality um, for example, if I invited Maha to my house for dinner, but just as she was getting ready to leave, some of her friends dropped in on her, she has to host her friends without telling that she has a pre another engagement to go to, and she'll have to call the Americans and say, I'm so sorry, I can't come. And then she'll have to sit there with her guests until they leave. So the Iraqis were really puzzled that this would be offensive to Americans to just, you know, like no-show or just last minute dropped them. They didn't realize this is a terrible offense to American hosts. But they said, how do we solve this? Because we can't tell our guests that we have to go somewhere. So that's and a lot actually, to learn. And actually, another thing, it's, uh, I mean, yes, I came here as a refugee. I didn't choose, a refugee word means you you forced to leave your country, you know, out of situation of war or, you know, bad situation. Uh, but there are some people who still also come here as an immigrants and they want to be here. Well, both cases, when they are here in the U.S., you know, they start to learn about Americans' lives. They, they adopt a lot of things and positive things. And I think it's, I think it's the culture or the people who are surra surrounded by them. They can, they can add to it. 
I, I know that there's a lot of fear. I was explaining earlier to my friend, maybe there are some fears from people who don't want to, you know, be by them or have some, you know, some ideas, and which is understandable completely. You know, I would be the same situation too if, I, if the situation was reversed. But um, I think when you have something in your heart and uh, you want to show it by action, you can come off the sphere a little bit and try to do simple things, you know, not, not, not a big thing. For example, I still remember Chuhiya, you know, came to me and showed me how to ride a bus. I never, I never even had to ride a bus back home. Filling out application for work, I don't know how to do that. I was a student, you know, and students in Iraq, it's unlike here, you know, you don't work when you are a student. You finish your school, get education, and then you're on your own. Um, taking us to doctor's appointment, translating, you know. At the beginning, my English was not, until now, you may notice that that's why I was nervous a little bit. Uh, English is, I'm thinking in English as a second language. I'm trying to overcome that, but sometimes she helped me in explaining things, and she will say some words, I will say, huh? You know, I don't know what she means by it, but, you know, later on she explained it to me. I get it, I understand it. So she helped me a lot in English, and she helped me a lot in understanding Americans in idioms too, you know, mm -hmm. something that we are not familiar. Yes, this past week her, her boss uh, resigned and left work and as she was, he was saying goodbye to Maha, he said, oh, bye Maha, stay out of trouble. And Maha was like, is he saying that I was a troublemaker? <laughs> <laughs> so many, many things like that where it could cause a lot of confusion and angst, you know, it just could be a simple explanation. So there's so much you can do. Yes, else? there. I mean, I don't know what, what I have right now. I'm, I feel I'm very blessed that I've known people who come and infected my, like interacted with my life and my family and affected me in very good and positive way. You know, uh, I don't think that I am the same person six years ago, and I'm thankful for that. You know, I'm changing and I'm learning and. That's all not because I do have the initial to learn, but still it's because the environment about me, people around me helped me to overcome a lot of fears and, you know, and just go, just, just keep doing what I'm supposed to do, you know? Mm -hmm. yeah, thanks, Maha. Well, in closing, I just want to say that, you know, if uh, Bill Belichick called you and said, would you, would you want to play for the Patriots? What would you say? You'd be just beside yourself, right? What an honor. I can't wait. I'm going to tell all my friends on Facebook and I'm tell everybody about this invitation. In the same way, God has this amazing team. He wants us to play for him. From Genesis, he made this play. And I have a global purpose. I have a job for you. This is your portfolio. It's global. Light to the nations. Salt of the earth ends of the earth, bring the good news, the joy of knowing my name. This is his call from the beginning to the end. And you don't need a second invitation. You know, don't say, oh, I can't be a missionary because I, didn't, I don't feel called. You already got the invitation. It's all over the map, all over the scriptures, not just in Matthew 28 where he says, you know, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. That's mandate is throughout the scripture from Genesis and we don't need a second invitation. So I hope you will jump at the chance when, when you read that, that God is inviting you. Come be part of this team and this is my heart for the alien, for the stranger, for the orphans, for the widows, that the good news you know, just be spread all over the world. 
So thank you for inviting us. I've enjoyed being here and look forward to getting to know you.